Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. This show started out very differently than what it has become. It started in July 2017, when I had the idea to interview a range of religious practitioners from my old town of Columbia, Missouri. We talked about their practices, their routines, their favorite aspects of their religious traditions, and more. I interviewed many of the people who were frequent guest speakers in my own classroom back at Battle High School in Columbia. If my students got to meet the person in the room, the parents or their friends could listen to the podcast to get a taste of what the conversations were like when those guest speakers would visit the actual class. Virtually all of my guests up into the episode number 20s, including episode 20, which I deleted for specific reasons at the request of the guest, and even some episodes up into the 60s were people who at one point or another sat in my classroom and spent time with my students. So this was a real treat. But episode 22 was with Brad Warner, and that was a turning point for me. So Brad Warner is a well-known author of books about Zen, Buddhism, Dogen, monster movies, punk rock, divorce, Zazen, and much more. And that was when the show became more about books, journalism, higher education, and research. Brad agreed to come on a podcast, this podcast, that had no listenership, but that has since gone on to release close to 120 more episodes since he appeared almost exactly two years ago to discuss his books, It Came From Beyond Zen and Don't Be a Jerk. So if you want to listen to me and Brad getting to know each other, or you want to hear his backstory a little bit about practicing Zen in Ohio and Japan, or meeting his teacher, um, Nishijima Roshi, and returning to the U.S. to start the Angel City Zen Center, you should go listen to episode number 22. It's still there, and it's a great episode. I really, really liked it. Last October, I also had the chance to meet Brad in Cleveland, Ohio, when he came to talk to the Crooked River Zen Center. Cleveland is just three hours away from where I live in Buffalo, so I popped down there. And I absolutely love meeting past podcast guests. Hi to all my guests that I've actually met in real life. And getting to meet Brad in person was really fun. So having Brad back on the show is a much different vibe this time around because I've gotten to spend some time with him and he is a gracious return guest. So in this episode, we discuss Brad's brand new book, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen, which is out now for my longtime friends at New World Library. We start off by talking about going on book tours, doing audiobooks, the premise for his new book, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen, And then we get into some pretty heavy discussions about dying. Brad has a brand new podcast also associated with this book. Um, So if you search for Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, wherever you get podcasts, you can find Brad's brand new show. And you can visit Brad online at hardcorezen.info. So my deepest regards and thanks to brad for coming back on the show we had a ton of fun so without further delay please enjoy my conversation with return guest brad warner brad warner Welcome back to Classical Ideas. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I had you um, 
on the show ages ago now, and I've done like 115 episodes since you were last here, and we've actually met in person since I last had you here. So this is really exciting to have you back as a return guest. Um, I'm really excited to chat with you about your brand new book, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about tour to begin, because I met you on tour last year in Cleveland at the Crooked River Zen Center. Mm -hmm. So you're known as a musician and a Zen monk. And, you know, I go see live music all the time. Musicians go on tour with their bands to try and expand their audience and make new fans. And you start your new book with a story of being on tour and talking about Zen in Germany. And I couldn't help but notice that there are some parallels to the way you tour for Zen that may be similar to how you might tour in a punk band. So um, can you talk a little bit about what your life is like on tour? Is it a comfortable existence? Is it uncomfortable? What is it like? Well, it's gotten better. When I first started out doing these book tours or whatever, I was doing them pretty... The only the only framework I had for putting together a tour was was how punk rock bands do it. So uh, so that's how I did it. I just uh, slept on people's couches and took whatever I, I could for for payment and, and just kind of went out and and did it. So I ended up in some really crazy places that are even crazier than some of the ones in the book. I think mm. in the book I mentioned the squat in Berlin that I was yeah. I was in that was freezing cold and and they were really nice people but it was a very strange place to be in. That that actually wasn't so bad. I've been in some places that were that were really uh, crazy and and uh, kind of <laughs> awful. But uh, I I've kind of worked it out so so it, it's a little better, but I'm never comfortable because I'm not I'm not really I don't know. I I do this for a living, but I'm not really you know, the adventure of going out has kind of worn off for mm. me because I I grew up weird. I I lived in Africa when when I was a kid, and we would travel a lot when we lived in Africa. And then I moved to Japan, and so that was all exotic and strange for eleven years. And then I've been doing these European tours for uh, ten years now, and you, you know the the sort of excitement that you get out of out of seeing new places and all that is, is largely gone. Mm. <laughs> and now I'm just kind of going, Oh my God, <laughs> Berlin. Yeah. You know, even though Berlin's a really cool place to go, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of going, Oh yeah. I just, I just want my, my, uh, corn checks and milk to for breakfast <laughs> or something you know you know something something normal after a while but you know it, it's all right it's a it's a living as the characters in the flintstones used to always say how do you uh, how do you, you choose that? yeah how do you choose where you go like where do you how do you prioritize your touring schedule well for the european things it's kind of come down to there's this, there's certain people that have invited me again and again and and there's there's places that I know I'm going to go every year and I've kind of worked those out and then when I get an invitation for somewhere that I can slot in between one of those main gigs that I do all the time then I then I do that like the, the first place I went in Europe was Finland these people in in Helsinki uh, invited me to come and because my hardcore Zen, my first book, had just been published in Finnish. So I got this invitation to come to Helsinki in 2009, 
And I'd been sort of talking to people in other places in Europe before that about coming, but I never had the means to do it because, uh, you know, the, the, the life of an author at my level is not all that, uh, I'm not getting rich. Mm, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get royalty checks twice a year for about $1,200 and go, oh, that's great. <laughs> That'll keep me going for a day or two, you know, um, so I, I don't, you know, so I'm not making loads of money. But uh, these these Finnish people had a way to finance the trip to Finland. So I decided, well, I can I can uh, tag, you know, add some other things along with this, and that's what I did. I just found I just got in contact with some of these other people in other countries, like in England and Germany and, and Netherlands, that had been talking to me before, and said, hey, I'm coming to Finland. Uh, I can probably swing by where you are, and that's how it began. And that's what I've been doing for, for 10 years. And, and now I've got a person in Germany who likes what I do. And she has been really good about setting up. Aneta Mann is her name. And she's been really good about setting up my, my tour. So she kind of organizes it for me for the last uh, three years. So that's been, it's been a lot better <laughs> since it, I stopped organizing them myself. <laughs> it's awesome to have people on the other end who are looking out for us too, you know? Yeah, that's for sure. So, um... As we discussed in our last episode, which um, was, like I said, about two years ago, almost on the dot, we talked about uh, It Came From Beyond Zen, your last book. And I mentioned in that conversation that I'm a huge fan of your audiobooks because you mm. tend to weave in little bits of creativity, fantastic little musical transitions, great pronunciation of challenging vocabulary. Like, I love your audiobooks, and I'm so glad that you make them yourself. Mm. And so I've been listening to the audiobook for Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, and it threw me for a very pleasant loop when I started it because it's recorded live in front of actual audiences. Um, how did you come to this decision for the direction and approach of your new audiobook for Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen? Well, uh, the book is written as a series of letters to my dead friend about Zen, which is, you know, the title of the book. And the 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 I don't know, the literary conceit is the phrase I've been using of the book is that I'm traveling through Europe and I'm writing these letters to my friend who's just died, which is somewhat is semi-fictional, but is not uh, not entirely fictional because I did have uh, two friends who died the same year when I was touring Europe and I did write a diary entry to one of those friends that that came out in the form of a almost a letter to him, and then and then I just decided to kind of make that uh, the whole book. And I, as I, uh, the book was finished in I don't know earlier this year. Was it this year? Yeah, I guess it was. Uh, and and everything was done, and I was kind of, and I was getting ready to do this tour of Europe, and it just, it, it was like a last minute thing almost. Uh, about a week before I went on tour, this sort of idea hit me that I was going to be going to the same, many of the same places where the letters are written from. Mm. So, you know, I was going to be traveling to the same cities, sometimes the very same places, venues that are mentioned in the book, like Benedictus Hof and some of these other places that I go regularly. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting? Because I'm going to have to do lectures at these places anyway. Yeah. And instead of just doing a standard lecture, I could read the letter that came from that city. Like, you know, if I was in Hamburg, I could read the letter that was written from Hamburg and, and uh, do that as a way. Usually my, when I give a talk, I, 
I, I am actually much more interested in the Q&A that follows the talk than I am in the talk. So I tend to kind of just create something that I think will spark a discussion uh, because uh, because I'm not interested in just filling the audience's head with my heads with my ideas. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to I want to get some back and forth going. So the so the letters proved to be really good for for stimulating conversations about you know what the letters were about and you know just things in general because they kind of the letters are very open. You know, like I'm I'm talking to a friend and so that I think got people more in the mood for for talking back to me. So the discussions that followed those letters were, were really good. And I, I saved those too. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them, whether I'm going to, you know, put them out as well, but uh, they, they all still, they, they got recorded as well. So there's a whole other book there. Did the, uh, did the audience members like um, deeply engage with the material, like uh, telling you stories about their own lives and how the death stories that you were writing about resonated with their lives too? Yeah, sometimes that happens. Usually that, that's something people will, will do in private. Occasionally somebody will share something like that in front of an audience. But usually what happens with that kind of thing is people come up to me after and then tell me their story about around that. But uh, I, think, I think just the fact that I was talking about this stuff made it more real. And that, and that was the whole reason for writing the book the way I did. Because the, the book was originally... I proposed to New World Library a book called Zen 101, and I tried to write that in sort of almost a textbook fashion, you know, mm. about here's what you need to know about Zen. And I just I just couldn't get into my own writing. It was just boring, and I, I didn't care about it. So, so framing it as an actual conversation, although it's a one-sided conversation with my dead friend, made it all come to life. And I think people in the audiences picked up on that. And so rather than being sort of a dry lecture on the the history and philosophy of Buddhism, it becomes something about why is this important? Because, you know, it's, it's obviously important to me or I wouldn't have been doing it so long, but you know, I, I need to be able to convey why that's important. Yeah, well, and you know, like another thing, just a practical matter, I found that you reading the book and recording it on tour to be almost like a, pro a productivity stroke of genius because you probably <laughs> saved yourself like 20 or 30 hours of sitting in your apartment talking to a microphone, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, that, that, was, <laughs> that was one of the other appeals it's so to great. doing it. And it gave me a whole different way to do an audio book, which I might do in the future. Uh, we'll see if it works out. But uh, the way I've been doing them, I mean, you, you say you like them. And I, I enjoy doing the audio books because I was doing music. I was doing albums before. So working with sound is really interesting to me. And I, when I was doing the earlier audio books, I, I just thought, well, you know, it's boring to just sit here and read the book aloud to an imaginary audience. So I started putting, you know, weird like sound effects things and, and, uh, just kind of things that just amused me into it. And, uh, I don't know. I'd like to, th I, I don't listen to that many audio books, but I have listened to a few and I'd like to think that mine are, are 
a bit of a different animal from the well, ordinary audiobook. Yeah, and I get them all. Like I remember I drove from Buffalo to Washington DC and I listened to There is No God and He is Always With You from front to back in one drive and I was like engrossed the entire time. So like I really do think your audiobooks are awesome and I think that everybody should check them out cuz it's such an awesome way to hear you tell the story within the book as well, you know, and I think that's kind of okay. the way that reading is going to we're we're mixing it up in the mediums that we use. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. It's it's nice to hear because I you know I'm just doing them alone. Well, this this one I was doing in front of an audience, but mostly I'm just doing them alone in my apartment and just going, well, I hope somebody <laughs> gets this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into the book a little bit. Um, so okay. Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen is directed to a friend of yours who passed away of cancer, Willard Marcus Clarkins, a.k.a. Marky Moon, which I love the title of the, the name Marky Moon as well because of the yeah. television record Marky Moon. Um, how has the reaction been to the book from people who knew all of you? You mentioned as well that Marky is like a, uh, an amalgamation of two yeah. people. Um, has anybody who knew you and these friends read the book and talked to you about it, what they thought about it? Have they read the book? Well, the book is still too new, so I haven't really heard from anybody who's who who knew uh, the real Marky and then read the book. But I can tell you another uh, slightly different story, which is that I recently did an event in Akron, Ohio, at which I was looking out in the audience and maybe 10 or so of the people who were sitting there in front of me were people who knew the, the person that I talked about, you know, in the book, mm. uh, the, the actual person, including the actual Marky Moon, because I didn't want to use the, the name of one of my actual uh, passed away friends. And I have this friend, Mark Smith, who went by the name Marky Moon whenever he, you know, his sort of punk rock name awesome. was Marky Moon. And, uh, and, I, and he also knew one of the people who, who died who had written the book about. And I said, well, can I use your name? Because I'd, I'd try, I'd made up various sort of fake punk rock names and they all sounded phony to me. <laughs> Mm. And and so uh, so using his so he was there you know he's sitting right in front of me as I'm reading this stuff. Uh, what I've been doing when I've been promoting this book is instead of reading the letters that are in the book, I'm I'm composing new letters to Marky for each venue, which I which I think is much more interesting. And I'm turning these into a podcast, which is now up on. I put the first episode up. Uh, couple weeks ago oh so sweet can, nice yeah so now you can find it if you look on itunes and spotify and podbean uh the three places it's up so far but i'm trying to get it everywhere but anyway so so that's what i'm doing and 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 the reaction there was really interesting because i was a bit nervous to to read this stuff in front of people who who actually knew the the point of the book was to kind of write about zen to to an audience of people who, well, when I'm thinking of, of the so-called Marky, since it's a pseudonym, but when I'm thinking of him, I'm thinking of these people who knew me before I was ever a Zen teacher. So I've got this whole, you know, I've got two lives. I suppose anybody who has any degree of notoriety in the world does. But, I, you know, I've got these people who knew me well before I started writing books and things. And so I, and then I've got these other people who, who know me from the books and the people who know me from the books have this often have a kind of a 
slightly fantastical image of who I am, and, you know, and all that. And, you know, which is often very hard to live up to. So I, I, I tend to shy away from that. Uh, but talking to the people who knew me before that, I can kind of make, I, I think I can make it more more real. And so, so I, I will see once the people who knew him actually start reading the book, because I know a few of them have the book and we'll see what they have to say about it. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how that'll be. I think that could be a really cool podcast episode. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe I can work a conversation into there you know, with one of those people. That would be so cool. I would like love to listen to that because, you know, I think about talking to, like I'm imagining if like one of my friends passed away and I wrote about them and I was talking about them deeply and caringly and lovingly um, about somebody who's no longer here. And I would always wonder about how everybody else's memories um, gelled with what I was saying. You know what I mean? Yeah, everybody's memories of a, of a person are, are different and that's, you know, that's one of the things you find out when somebody dies, I think, you know, all this stuff starts to come up and you're going, oh, was he, was he like that? I mm -hmm. didn't know, you know. So, so yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Maybe I should have the real Marky Moon on the podcast, although he's kind of a, he, uh, he's a drummer for a, you know, he's been a drummer for rock and roll bands for forever and he likes to do that, but he also isn't a guy who likes to put himself out other than when there are drums in front of him. You nice. Know? Gotcha. He's one of those guys. So I don't know if I, I don't know if he'd want to be on the podcast or not. Yeah. Well, um, so lines, lines throughout this book are jumping out at me. And one of them really grabbed my attention was when you write cancer, age 48, Jesus. <laughs> and I'm about to be 36 and I think of, you know, only having 12 more years on this earth. And that was a little bit of a gut punch, that line. Um, and I know that you're older than 48. And this line came through in your voice on the audio. You know what I mean? Like whenever I heard you say that line, like it kind of made me cringe a little bit. Um, what does this line remind you about in your day to day life right now? <laughs> Mortality and all that. Yeah, it's uh, it, he the 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 guy I was thinking of when I wrote the, both of the people were about the same age that I'm that I'm writing to and they're they were both two years behind me in high school so like they were sophomores when I was a senior so I knew both of them in high school and um, so yeah it's it's weird to, to because you kind of if you if you first at least for me anyway, when I first meet somebody that that's the that's the version of them that sort of sticks with me forever. And I think most of us are kind of like that. So it's it's hard, you know, it, even though I I followed uh, my friends throughout their lives and, and their changes and stuff, they're always in some sense going to be that 13 year old kid that that hung around, you know, mm. that, that, uh, that followed me around sometimes. And, and, uh, that's so, so when somebody like that dies of, of cancer, my God, that's, that's a heavy uh, thing to, yeah. to deal with. And, and of course, you know, you sort of go, Oh my God, I could, <laughs> I could die like that myself, you know, and it's all, you know, it all gets uh, stuck in there for myself. I've been kind of aware of, the specter of of death <laughs> i think 
I don't know if, if all people go through this. I, for me, it was really early on because two of my aunts uh, died of this terrible genetic disorder while I was a teenager. Where they were both dying of it and, uh, and in advanced stages. And then my mom also passed away from that. And I was older by the time she died, but it was still uh, it was still pretty devastating to see. So it, it from from my mid-teens, I knew that there was this looming uh, possibility of this this horrible genetic disorder that we that that runs in my family, you know, killing me before I even got to be the age I am now. I, I'm kind of surprised <laughs> at how old I am now. I'm kind of going, oh, I didn't expect to get this old. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Uh, but it's. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, there's this kind of weird thing that happens in certain Eastern religions. It's not, it happens a little bit in Buddhism, but it's very prevalent in, in Hinduism where you are instructed to, to sit and ponder your own death, you know, as, as if whoever came up with these instructions imagines that the people he or she is talking to don't think about that a lot. And I always look at those going, ah, <laughs> I don't need this because I, because I think about it too much, you know, and I, and I have since, since a young age. Uh, so, but that tends to be a kind of a trope in Eastern religions is to remind you that you're going to die someday. And, and we all know this, uh, personally, I don't need the reminders, uh, cause I'll remind myself enough. Mm. But uh, maybe some people need the reminders. I don't know. Yeah, you know, and like I love your your the wide range of your books too. Um, you're always very honest in your your writing. That's the way it comes off. Like Zen wrapped in karma, dipped in chocolate. Super honest. And mm. what you wrote another line in this book that says, "When grief comes, I let it come." And knowing the you know your body of work, I was like, "Well, yeah, that completely makes sense." Um, so in the wake of Marky's death, you also write, what am I doing with my life? So did mm. these deaths affect you differently than other deaths? Were these like, um, I mean, because obviously you wrote a book about them. So how did these deaths resonate differently than other deaths that you've experienced? Uh, you know, I don't know. That that whole what am I doing with my life thing was about Zen, you know, because uh, very sort of early on in my late teens, I got introduced to, to Zen Buddhism and I started doing this uh, practice, this Zazen meditation practice and getting very deeply into the philosophy of Zen and, you know, kind of ended up dedicating my life to it. So, so I've had this for a long time and part of why... I got into it was to deal with the sort of pervasive fear of death that was going on already, you know, in my, as I said, in my mid teens, I got sort of like hit with this idea that I might not have long to live. And then, you know, what am I going to do with that? And, and there's all sorts of things I've actually, it's been a while since I've done this, but I actually spent some time years ago, 20 or more years ago, looking into how people who have terminal diseases or genetic disorders and things, you know, the things where they, they feel like they might have a kind of a 
an expiration date on their lives. Unlike, you know, most people, I suppose, who kind of just go through it thinking they're going to live forever and mm. they, but they don't, <laughs> they don't live forever mm. either. But, but, you know, those of us who sort of get told early on and, and there's a sort of, there's, there's a lot of things people do. They, they get into hedonism and a lot of people become, it's kind of a syndrome where people become very dare, daredevilish. You know, if you look into people who, who are, you know, jumping motorcycles across canyons and things, you know, crazy things like that, you'll often find that there's something like that going on in their lives that they have, they have something uh, behind that, you know, like a, uh, uh, like a disease in the family or, or something like that. And so it's always been, it's always been some, you know, that that's always been there. And so I don't know, it's, it's sort of different. I, the 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 actual Marky Moon is not the first person close to my age that I knew that died, but he's probably the the closest person, you know, as as far as somebody being a close friend who then died much too young. I, I you know most of the other people I knew were not I was not that close to, uh, you know, who were around my age. Uh, so that that sort of you know gives you the puts the fear of God into you, as mm. they say, in some, some areas. So I guess it affected me in that sense of going of the, of the reality of it, of the, you know, the reality of how, how short our time is on earth. And you want to do something with your time, you know, you want to do something worthwhile. I, I think, you know, that's, I guess probably most people do. Even if you're getting into hedonism, you're you're thinking that the worthwhile thing to do with your life is to, you know, get as much pleasure as possible, you know, before everything goes sour. But a lot of people get into causes. In fact, just before I got on here, I was reading some, the story of some Buddhist uh, a scholar who found out that he had ALS, and then he's been on this sort of big. Uh, you know, kick to prove that buddhism is full of violence and, mm. which i which i which i find kind of a, a fascinating thing but it's it's an article that's being shared a lot in the buddhist community within the past week or so about how violent buddhism is and i, I think he's kind of, i think he's wrong but then i'm also re uh, reading that he has als and that this is his response to having als makes me less anxious to criticize him you know because i'm like uh you know he, he probably feels like he's got a put this out there in the, what little time he has left. Mm. And, and I think that's, I think that's the way a lot of people respond. Well, I also love, I just want to briefly comment on that. I love your outspokenness within the Buddhist community. I think that it's uh, really interesting and needed and refreshing. And I know that you have, you know, faced some issues all by yourself. It seems like, you know? Mm. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say. You know, I, I, there, American Buddhism uh, at least in the large coastal cities where, you know, where it's most popular has been kind of gripped with the same sort of, you know, heavily leftist politics thing that the rest of the, you know, the coastal cities have been gripped with for the past, you know, few years. And, and I think there's a, a tendency for people to get confused because, you know, Buddhism is all about treating people nicely. And then they think, well, the way to treat people nicely is to be, you know, to, to have the left wing political policy. So let's push that. And that's Buddhism. And, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of confusion over, over what Buddhism is about. And, and whenever I point that out, 
you know, people from those organizations get mad because I'm, I'm uh, not towing the line. I try not to be, I, I try not to get real political or, or to take sides, but I think that Buddhism should not be, you know, these kind of, a kind of party political thing because mm. then then you just then you're just limiting it to to people who already agree with your political point of view and i don't think that's does anybody any good you you want it to be you want this sort of good thing to be available to anybody who's ready to receive it no matter who they voted for right know? and that that's that's kind of my stance. So, yeah, and you, you actually write about that a little bit in the book. And there's a quote that jumps out at me when you write, The emerging consensus of American Zen seems to me to be an attempt to capture the beast, anesthetize it, pull out its claws and teeth, and force it to breed tame, clawless, fangless offspring. So you came to Zen from what you describe as a sort of like out-of-the-ordinary approach. And mm -hmm. I wonder if you could speak to the people who may be discovering Zen out there right now, like those punk rock kids in Ohio or Kentucky or North Carolina or Arizona who are finding yeah. Zen. What might you, um, as somebody who came to it from an unorthodox way, what might you encourage them to do feeling the way that you do about the Zen American infrastructure? Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> don't listen to the Zen American infrastructure. I think would be the most would be the 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 main thing. I, I, I the the reason I got into Zen, or one of the reasons I got into Zen, is because I felt like it was. And I used to say this as a kind of line all the time. It was like the most punk rock thing I'd ever come across. You know, when yeah. I was the 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 all the things that I got into punk rock for. I, I looked at the Zen approach and I was like, oh, that that takes the punk rock, the same sort of punk rock stance, but goes all the way with it. You know, they don't they don't just stop at questioning, you know, the authority figures or 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 the, you know, the, the masses. They're actually applying that same attitude of questioning to themselves. You know, instead of going, I am right and all these people are wrong, they're going, all these people are wrong and I. I'm probably wrong too, <laughs> you know, which I, which I think is a very interesting, uh, approach. And, and, uh, and I think that's, you know, that's something to look at. And, and there, I think what, what happens with any sort of a religious or philosophical movement is that as it becomes popular, there's a tendency to kind of want to make it more popular. And then they, and then you, you start, doing things to to make it more appealing and and to to kind of um oh i don't know frame it and and sort of limit it and and sort of canonize it and turn it into well this is exactly what we want and it's going to be in this fixed form and i think what the the zen form of buddhism especially and this may go to, to some extent for all forms of Buddhism, but it's especially prevalent in Zen is that it, it, it refuses to be boxed in that way. And, and, and there's, there's a lot of people out there right now in America who are trying their darndest to box it in as much as possible. And, and I think to a certain extent they're going to succeed. That's mm. my, you know, that's my, I sort of resign myself to the idea that eventually there'll be a, a, a Zen or Buddhist orthodoxy in America, just like there is in Japan and just like there is in a lot of Buddhist countries. <clears throat> and that orthodoxy will be 
just as crappy as every other religious orthodoxy because they all they're all terrible. So so the, these people who are who are pushing that in the Zen world, I think, are just really dumb if they think that they're going to create an orthodoxy that's any better than any other orthodoxy has ever been. And, uh, and you know, that's, that's my argument there. Nice. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about, um, the questioning, um, that you, that you put forth in this book about why you do what you do. And there's this awesome part where you write sitting, 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 meditating my life away as it all passes by lighting incense and candles, bowing to nothing, chanting the same stupid crap that they've chanted since forever ago, because maybe this time it will work. So throughout the book, you seem to be like legitimately questioning and seriously confronting your Zen practice. Um, could you ever see yourself stopping? No, <laughs> I I couldn't do it, and 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 the the reason is is because it's been so useful to me, and and that questioning part of it in the in the first draft of that book, it was it was much more brutal than it is in the <laughs> in the finished version, and my editor was saying. Oh, you you got to take some of this out because you know nobody's <laughs> nobody's going to read past this because yeah. you just trash you know I just trashed <laughs> all of Zen in the first chapter and then how how am I going to expect anybody to want to read the rest of the book about Zen after I've just you know killed it off in the you know right in the beginning, but uh, but that's the way I look at it honestly I I sometimes go oh you know what is, what good is this but the thing that keeps me into it is that I I can see. And I saw that very early on what what good it was, you know, because I I started doing Zen because I took this, you know, almost randomly took this class at Kent State University called Zen Buddhism, which I didn't know, you know, I knew a little. I knew that Zen was, you know, I, I knew Buddhism was an Indian philosophy, and I knew that Zen was its Japanese manifestation, and and that was probably the extent of my knowledge about Zen, but I was taking philosophy courses and I thought, well, this, this is kind of an unusual philosophy course. Let's, let's see where this goes. Um, <clears throat> so I wasn't, I didn't come into it because I wanted to get into Zen. You know, a lot of people, you know, get very excited about Zen long before they start practicing. And I started practicing long before I got excited about, about Zen. And the thing is, I, I, because I wasn't trying to be into Zen, you know, I, I did it initially during that class and I hung on to it for a few months afterwards and then, then I stopped. But then I, then after I stopped, I'm going, Oh, I feel crappy now. (laughs) You know, why do I feel so crappy? And, and then I go, Oh, I'm not doing that Sazen thing every morning. Like I used to, okay, I'll go back and do it for a while. And I repeated this cycle. I didn't count how many times, but you know, maybe three, four or five times. I don't, I don't really know how many times I gave up on Zen, but it, it was more than once. And every time I just come back to it because I, I just saw the usefulness of it. I, I, I wasn't sort of having enlightenment experiences or, you know, floating through the, the clouds or I met a guy yesterday at a bus stop in, in LA who was uh, smoking a joint as people do now. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and he started talking to me and I mentioned writing books about meditation and he went to, oh, have you been to other dimensions? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I haven't really been to other dimensions. <laughs> you know, so, so people sort of have this, this imagination of what, what meditation is going to be like. And it's not really about going to other dimensions. You're just kind of, most of the time you're just sitting there and it's, it's boring, but 
but it was great for me. You know, it was, it was really great. And, and after a few years, I did start to have some surprising experiences that, you know, I've written about them in books. I wasn't about to tell the guy at, at the bus stop smoking a joint about it because I thought, oh, this is, this is going to go in a weird direction if I tell him about some of the stranger things that happened during meditation. But the, the thing is, mo those things won't start happening for most people if they're healthy for years. You know, if, if somebody kind of goes into it in an unhealthy mental state, they might start tripping out right away. But generally, if you're, if you're okay, you're you know, your first few years, maybe even five or 10 years of, of meditation is going to be mainly boring. Mm. Uh, but, but after you kind of pass a certain mark, there's a depth to it that, that shows itself. And I think that's one of the important aspects of this practice is that you're, you're trying to get really comfortable with being bored before anything exciting happens. Because otherwise, you're, the excitement of of what might happen as a result of a meditation practice will just will probably ruin your meditation practice because you'll just get so into like ah oh, I want that exciting thing to happen again and you know yeah I've I've, uh, I've spoken a lot on this show about my uh, my lapsing uh, meditation practices and how I you know I binge meditate where I'll like not do anything for months and then I'll go to a, a retreat and sit there and suffer like a complete moron. Um, yeah, it's really hilarious. Um, but you know, this book also got me thinking about my friendships. You know, um, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm about to be 36, and I've had friends that I was that I'm so dear friends with, but all of a sudden life has gotten busy and then all of a sudden we're in our mid thirties and we haven't seen each other in years, yeah. you know, and those years fly by instantaneously. And this book letters to a dead friend about Zen got me thinking about this. And I think about all of the unsaid and undone things of life constantly, especially with my friends who have grown distant. And yeah. so with Marky, you write, there are times when I feel like if we had discussed it, maybe together we'd have come around to something valuable. Um, did this book help you, like with alleviating those feelings of missing your friends and things being left unsaid, was this like a helpful, like sort of like therapeutic exercise for you? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it definitely was. And, and it, it, uh, well, all my books are sort of attempts to reach an audience who would normally not be interested in this stuff. So in a sense, I'm doing the same thing as I've always done, but this was a little different in that, that I'm talking to somebody real specific about it. And, and yeah, it, it, it helped. It, it's sort of a way, because as you mentioned, uh, there, there are people who knew him who are, are now going to be reading the book or probably already are at the moment. And, you know, maybe it'll speak to them or maybe it'll say something to them as well. So it's not all, all lost. And, and I, I had this funny question when I did my first podcast, which is up now, if you want to look at it or listen mm. to it, um, in, in England, where somebody asked, what do I feel about, you know, Marky, the, the person who died now? Do I feel like he's just completely gone from this universe? And then the person who asked the question said, I would assume from your writing that you think he just doesn't exist at all. And I, and I said, well, no, I, I don't really think he doesn't exist at all. I think they're you know, I, I, I hold out the possibility that there's some sort of continuity there. I don't, I don't insist that there is, but I don't, I don't think it's 
completely stupid to to posit that there might be you know something that continues on but um so so you know in a way maybe i am addressing him i don't know but uh but i'm also addressing myself you know in in him and i'm also talking to myself about why i'm doing this this practice because you know, I remember going to Tassajara, which is a Zen monastery up in Northern California one year, about to spend like a month there in cloistered sort of meditation practice and uh, and going, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> you know, I could be having fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's there's that, too. What uh, what reminds you of Marky or dead friends or family in your day to day life? Do you like take moments and reflect on these people um, just with like stimuli out in the world when you're just going about your normal business? Well, yeah, I mean, it, with the with the person that I most was I that I was most thinking about when I wrote this book, we had a lot in common. So it's 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 difficult to to for a day to go by when something doesn't remind me of him because it's just <clears throat> it's just all the same things that I do. You know, he was into a lot of the same music and and uh, other other things and sort of pop culture world that we all inhabit these days was was something we held common between us so so there's a there's a lot that uh, that reminds me of, of him and it reminds me of the people that I've that I've lost and, and in a sense I think they're all still with us and I, I don't know about in the sort of cosmic experiential sense but I but I do know for sure that that these people are are part of my life and always will be and and the influence we had on each other was mutual even though uh, even though he was younger than me uh, he had an influence on me and uh, so so there's that as well are there any records or anything or movies or comic books or anything that really um <laughs> you know you associate with this person oh yeah 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 uh, I, I think uh Somebody was playing Danzig one time, oh, and I was dude, thinking, "Oh yes. God!" You know, he he used to blast. We shared a house together, and I remember him just blasting Danzig to the to the point where I'm like, "Oh God, stop it with the Danzig!" <laughs> Funny story about well, Danzig. I just saw the original Misfits at Madison Square Garden two weeks ago. God. With Danzig. Zero Defects opened for the Misfits, dude. <laughs> not not at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> oh my gosh! We opened gosh. for them at this at this uh, rented uh, like it wasn't a VFW hall. It was a place called the Big Room, and it was just this sort of party room. A lot of a lot of probably every city has them, but mid mid level cities like Akron have a lot of these sort of little party rooms that people can rent out and and throw a party at, and and that's. Uh, Jimmy and Vince, two guys from our scene, had, had gone and rented this place so that the Misfits could come and play a show, and and it was very DIY, and that was when Zero Defects opened for the Misfits. <laughs> you have no idea how awesome it is that you just told me that. Like that is <laughs> that's the coolest thing ever, dude. Like, yeah, amazing. It, was, it was a it was a pretty cool show because they were already they they were this was nineteen eighty three I think yeah. maybe two but but um, there is a, there is a video there's no video of that show but there is a video because the next day they played in Detroit and they got interviewed and they say you know where have you been and said well last night we were in Akron and you know awesome. and I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah so uh, so that's kind of fun and there's a couple it's funny how because film was so precious those in those days and people didn't have digital cameras so I, I i i've only ever seen maybe four photographs from that gig 
And I'm just going, wow, <laughs> you know, because people were so poor, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to take a bunch of photographs of the misfits. <laughs> well, if you have a chance to see the uh, the misfits right now with Danzig and Dave Lombardo on drums, like you should 100% just suck it up and spend the money and go because it was really? incredible. Oh, that's good. It was a it was a great show even then because they they were, you know, I'd always been a fan of Kiss and they put on a show that was almost almost like a Kiss type of show, but in this tiny little venue, and and I w- I remember being really impressed by by their performance and and I I'd heard the album before they came through because that um, Misfits Walk Among Us was already out, but uh, didn't prepare me for for actually seeing what they were like and I thought they did a great show well danzig is a force of nature and has been ever since um so brad i am super happy to have you back on the show i am really really pleased uh reading your new book it gives me a ton to think about and i think that everybody should check out letters to a dead friend about zen um also being a podcast nerd i'm also excited to learn today of your new podcast project so thank you for um telling everybody about that and uh, where can people find you if they want to follow your work? Well, the easiest place is hardcorezen.info. That's dot .info. So hardcorezen is the name of my first book. And then I got the .info domain because I couldn't get the .com. Excuse me. Because I couldn't get the .com domain. So um, so uh, that's, uh, yeah, hardcorezen.info has links to everything. And you just reminded me I better put, I haven't put podcast links on there yet because the podcast just went up. So, but everything is linked from there. If you go to hardcorezen.info. Well, Brad, thank you so much, sir. This has been a real blast. And I am just so glad to have your voice on Classical Ideas once again. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, I'm going to cut it there. <clears throat> Good. Dude, yeah, that I'm was super. That was, I, yeah, that was super fun. Over. <laughs> well, actually, no, my, my clock is counting from the time we first started talking. Oh, so, no, we did really well. Okay. Like, I have to be at my daughter's okay. school in like 40 minutes, and it's two minutes away. So I have oh, okay. like, I have all the time in the world. So we had we had a way better chat, I think, because you were able to come on early. So once again, I'm super grateful to you. Otherwise, it would have been really fast and really pressurized. And I think that we, yeah, had, no worries. I, I think we had a lot more fun this way. Yeah, it's good. I think it worked out good. Awesome, dude. Well, um, I'm going to put this thing out ASAP um, as okay. soon as I can. Um, and I have a really fresh episode up right now, so it'll probably be about a week or so. But I will tag you on socials and all that garbage all right. that you hate. And um, I will uh, keep you posted, okay? All right. Thank you. Dude, Brad, been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I will uh, chat with you soon, okay? Okay. Bye. Have an awesome day. Bye. You too. Bye. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.